Robert E. Lee went on the strategic offensive three times in the Civil War. These ended at Antietam, Gettysburg, and Bristow Station, all defeats. What went wrong? We'll ask our guest, Michael A. Palmer, author of Lee Moves North, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented, independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors. Cried the second. I hope there's the bathroom. Cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael A. Palmer, author of Lee Moves North, Robert E. Lee on the Offensive, and a third subheading from Antietam to Gettysburg to Bristow Station. It's a look at three strategic offensives undertaken by Lee, all ending in failure, and asking the question, why did this happen? That's where we got in our first segment, trying to draw some links between these three campaigns. Um, Mike, uh, before we get into asking uh, about those links specifically, one of the things I enjoyed about the book was your introduction, where you point out uh, there's not a whole lot of historiography in it, uh, because professional historians already know what you know, Thomas Connolly or Archer Jones thinks, and most non-professional historians don't particularly care. And uh, I thought that was a, a useful thing to uh, to put in. But the name of Connolly uh, struck a nerve at the uh, seminar I was at last weekend with uh, uh, I can't remember who was speaking. Might have been Joseph Gladhar. He said he was speaking in Richmond, and he mentioned Thomas Connolly, and the audience began to boo. Uh, so, so some people uh, still take a, a very personal uh, interest in Robert E. Lee, and they don't want criticism of Mars Robert. But, but we're going to forge bravely ahead here, nonetheless. Um, so, so you looked at these three campaigns and, and found Lee is defeated each time he goes over to the offensive. Uh, what, what kind of links did you find here? Well, there, there there were a couple, uh, actually more than a couple, several. Uh, first off, he has no plan. Uh, 
at least if if he has a plan, he's not sharing it with anybody. Uh, there's no, I mean, if you, and and this will lead to a second one. I'll I'll just throw out there too. He has he really doesn't have a staff compared to staffs of armies, not just in the middle of the 19th century, but even, say, Napoleon's chief of staff and, and general staff system where they prepare plans. I mean, if you look at the federal plans in this period, say, for the uh, the, the campaign in 1864, or even the Chancellorsville campaign, you can find detailed plans on which corps moves where, when, you know, when you have to, you have to get across the, the ford from here to here during this period. You have a road from this time to this time, and then somebody's cavalry divisions coming down the road, you have traffic management. All these things are common in the middle of the 19th century. If you look at Lee's campaigns, uh, there's no plan. There's no, you know, you move out here and, and you have a road this amount of time and then somebody's, you know, Fitz Lee's brigade's coming over across the bridge. And oh, what, what about like Special that. Order 191? Does that That's just about the only one, and of course he, they lose that. Uh, and, it, and it's it's never done again, and that's about the only thing he ever put on paper because he needed to because his commanders were uh, the, the army was kind of broken up, so he had to send them uh, information. Normally he doesn't, and uh, he didn't before then. I mean, there's no campaign plan for the Maryland campaign, for example, until you get to the to special order when he suddenly finds himself in a situation he had not foreseen. I mean, he did not think the Federals would move for a couple of weeks, and they did. Uh, he expected them to abandon Harper's Ferry, which maybe they should have, but they didn't. Uh, he expected the people in Maryland to greet him as a liberator. They didn't. He expected people to accept Confederate money. They wouldn't. He expected them to turn over supplies. They herded their cattle and moved them north into Pennsylvania. So, I mean, his the, the things he had expected, his assumptions about the campaign weren't working out. Plus, nobody knows what percentage of his army didn't cross the river with him. People just didn't come, uh, and he had massive amounts of desertion, and he, he didn't even know how many men he had when he got to Antietam. He really didn't know, which is not a good position to be in. Uh, the Gettysburg campaign, again, there's no master plan, there's no nothing on paper, and the same is true with Bristow Station. Uh, now, the lack of a plan uh, is related, I think, to the fact that he doesn't have a staff. Uh, and I was watching Gettysburg the other day, rewatching it, a uh, terrible movie, but there's a scene in there where, where uh, Taylor, Major Taylor, says to him, General, you know, I, I'm sorry I can't do everything. And uh, you know maybe you need a bigger staff, and and uh, Martin Sheen says no, no, that's all right, Major, don't you worry. But I mean, in fact, he did. I mean, compared to the say Humphreys, the chief of staff of uh, Meade's army in 1864. Uh, I mean, uh, most people I've talked to when I go out, I ask them who who Lee's chief of staff was, not Major Taylor, but who his actual chief of staff of the army in Northern Virginia was, and nobody's ever been able to tell me. They don't even know who he is. Nobody's ever written about him. I couldn't even find an article about the guy, a little biographical notes, Richard Chilton. Uh, so there is no staff work being done. And that leads to another problem of people not go, knowing where exactly they're supposed to go, which shows up in uh, in all his campaigns. You see, uh, for example, in the Gettysburg campaign, everybody knows about Stuart, that Stuart's not where he's supposed to be. Uh, but there there are reasons for that beyond you know whether Lee gave vague orders or whatever. I mean, Stuart, after screening the army's initial movements in phase one, is then expected to get from the rear of the army 
to the front of the army, which at that point is, is straddling the Potomac River. If you think about that for a second, that's not a particularly easy thing to do, because basically Stuart had to move either around the Union Army, which is what he attempts to do, and we know how that worked out, or through Lee's entire army. Stuart had to march his cavalry up the valley, or actually down the valley, through Longstreet's Corps, through Hill's Corps, and then through Ewell's Corps to get out in front of it. Now, that's that's a staff problem. That's a traffic management problem. That's who's going to be, who controls the roads, who's going to be there. And if you read the accounts at the time from other units, there was this huge, confused situation at the crossing points because it was just, you know, whoever was there was there, and they were crossing, and they were driving herds of cattle across the river and everything else. Longstreet's Corps wasn't supposed to be there yet. They had moved in early, and it was a disaster. And this is all because of, you know, not having a detailed plan, not having a, a staff system that's going to develop a detailed plan, and you end up with, uh, you know, Heath moving to Gettysburg. There's no cavalry in front of him. He doesn't know what's going on. He stumbles into into the federal cavalry, and you end up with the Battle of Gettysburg. And if you look at, say, the Bristow Station campaign, it's the same thing all over again. Heath does is supposed to have cavalry in front of him, Fitz, Fitz Lee's brigade. But there's no real plan. He's supposed to be out in front of uh, Heath. And, but the question is where. So Fitzley uh, uh, Lee heads out toward Manassas, uh, taking a, a road to the west, which allows him to get around the Federals. But that means when, when Harry Heath moves forward and that, the, that October morning leading up to Bristow, uh, I think it's, a date. it's been so long since I read my own book, uh, he has nobody in front of him, and, and guess what? He stumbles once again into another another ambush, this time of a couple federal corps at, at Bristow, and they lose a couple thousand men. Meanwhile, uh, Robert E. Lee's nephew is at Manassas, uh, totally out of position. And you see that the same thing happen again and again, even in the Maryland campaign. Lee is blind for a while because the uh, the cavalry's covering the movements as the rest of the army moves across the Potomac. So he, in all three campaigns, in an effort to get around the Federals, he doesn't have enough cavalry to both screen his army and uh, uh, do recon out in front of it. So they, they have to transition from the rear of the army to the front of the army very fast, and in all three campaigns they're unable to do that. And well, he gets surprised in all three campaigns. So there's, you know, you have a common theme there, and there's I mean, this makes a lot of sense. At least it, it lacks staff to do things, and thus things don't get done. The traffic management is not done. But as you're describing this, I found myself wondering, well, how the heck did he win any battles? And how did Chancellorsville and Second Manassas come about? Well, he's on the defensive, and he doesn't. You don't have as great a chance for confusing and confusing each other, getting in each other's way. The, the other thing related to this is his subordinates make don't know what's going on because they they really don't tell him. I think in the Maryland campaign, the only guy who really knows what's happening, I think, is, is Jackson. Longstreet, I mean, they're actually, you can read Longstreet's memoirs. He gets, he goes to see Lee. Lee and Jackson are in there. When he they finish their meeting, they let him in and they tell him what they're going to do. I mean, he's not even part of the decision process during the, the Maryland campaign. Uh he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. In the Gettysburg campaign, Lee expected him to keep the First Corps 
to the east of the mountains, while the rest of the army was west of the mountains moving into Pennsylvania. Cause, and his Longstreet's job, and as Lee envisioned it, was to keep the Federals south of the river as long as possible until at least the two corps got over the river, and then Longstreet could hustle over. Now, Longstreet doesn't do that. Longstreet quickly moves into the valley and gets in position in the great traffic jam at the river behind uh, behind uh, uh, Third Corps, uh, behind Hill's Corps. And Lee sends him a letter saying, that's not what I wanted you to do. What I had wanted you to do was this, and here's the reason. But the, the obvious question to ask then is, why didn't he tell him that beforehand? Because once Longstreet is told what he was, was expected to do, he understands it. But he didn't know what he was expected to do, so he, he actually did the wrong thing, and that allowed Hooker to get over the river more quickly, which probably had, in my view, more to do with what happens at Gettysburg than anything Stewart did. Uh, you can't blame Longstreet for that, though, because Longstreet, if you look, and I've looked through all the orders to Longstreet, it's never clear when exactly he's supposed to make this transition from a uh, force that, that could, technically speaking, threaten Washington by remaining south of the river to one that's supposed to join the rest of the army. Uh, if you look at a, a campaign like, like Chancellorsville or, or Fredericksburg, I mean, Fredericksburg's, you know, they're lined up. Here come the Federals. Nobody, everybody knows what they have to do. You know, shoot the, the blue, blue bellies in front of you and hold your position. And that's about it, whereas it's a little more complex at Chancellorsville with Jackson. Uh, but, again, Jackson's somebody he does take into his confidence, and Jackson knows what he's doing. Uh, but, but often other people don't. But I think when you're on the defensive, everybody pretty much knows what they're supposed to be doing. When you go over to the street strategic offensive, uh, things get much more difficult. I mean, if you know the U.S. Army was trying to defend Florida against a foreign invasion, I don't think they'd, there'd be you know, a great deal that they would not know what to do. You invade Iraq, you know, you better have a better plan uh, so that people know where they're supposed to go and what's supposed to be done and what the sequencing is, and you have, you're much more likely when you're on the strategic offensive to mess up. It's, the offensive is harder than the defensive. That's why you need a, you know, you're supposed to have a three-to-one, at least uh, tr- tr- traditional ratio. You want a three-to-one, uh, you know, uh, superiority in troops to make up for the difficulties you have on the offensive because it's inherently a more difficult posture. You mentioned that um, Lee takes Jackson into his confidence. I mean, you can frequently read people who will say that you know Jackson and Lee had this mystical bond. Jackson knew what Lee was thinking. Uh, you know, Jackson did the right thing at, at you know at, in the Antietam campaign. If Jackson had been at Gettysburg, he would have known what Lee wanted. It, do you see that, that they were telepathic like that, or, or did Lee just talk more to Jackson than he did to Longstreet? I wouldn't know if i go as far as telepathic, but, I mean, you see this. There are frequently people who, you know, whether it's in sports, a quarterback and a receiver who just seem to know which way to go and where the ball's going to be and where the defense is going, and they, they always seem to go the right way. And and maybe rapport is, is, is a better term. I think they had a rapport. I think they understood each other. And I think Jackson was able, better able to place himself in Lee's boots and say, you know, if Lee was standing with, right here with me today, what would he tell me to do? And then just do it. Uh, I don't think his other commanders, Longstreet being very capable, Ewell being maybe, 
less capable were able were as well able to do that to put themselves in their shoes and say what exactly is it that Lee expects me to do here so I don't think he was on the same plane with them that he had been on with Jackson that's not to say that if Jackson had been a Gettysburg they would have won it's just I'm sure if Jackson had been a Gettysburg they probably would have done better uh, but I, I, I do think he had that there was something between him and, and Jackson not that Jackson didn't have his moments too of uh, just not being able to move. It, it, certainly, you know, seven days comes to mind. Yeah. But the uh, you make an interesting point in the book about command styles, um, the difference between a, a decentralized style such as Lee used, where you rely on your subordinates to make decisions on the spot, or a centralized command system where you uh, you know tell everybody what to do from from on high. And your conclusion seems to be that the decentralized system traditionally is the the more effective one when it works. Uh, but Lee loses these battles. So how, how do we reconcile that? Well, I mean, it, it is. I, I wrote a book on naval warfare where I argue that it is, and I think traditionally the decentralized system is better. But there are a couple of things you have to do. The first thing is you need good subordinates. Uh, if you don't have good subordinates, it won't work. Uh, and I think. That's partly the problem at Gettysburg. I mean, Lee. I mean, Lee has two commanders early on: Longstreet and Jackson. Very good, very trustworthy. At Gettysburg, he's got Hill, Yule, and Longstreet. You know, Hill and Yule are probably you know above their pay grade. I mean, they shouldn't be there. They're they're adequate division commanders. They probably shouldn't have been corps commanders. Uh, and a lot of the division division commanders were new and untested. A lot of the brigadiers were new and untested. I think something like a third of Lee's brigadiers at Gettysburg, it was their first time commanding at that level. And I think uh, out of his nine infantry divisions, I forget how many of them were new. And, of course, two out of the three corps commanders. Uh, so the first thing you need are good people. And if you don't have good people, you do need to direct them, and you do need to give them very specific orders. Uh, the second thing you need to do is to make a decentralized system work is you have to take people into your confidence. You have to sit down with them, and everybody should know. I mean, if you compare you know, Nelson sitting with his captains going over how he envisions battles being fought, and if this happens, do this, if this happens, do this. Or in World War II, Arleigh Burke in the Pacific does the same thing. If you look at many famous commanders who use decentralized systems, they bring as many of their people as they can into their confidence, whether, you know, down to, uh, you know, I would say down to certainly the division level in an army like the Northern Virginia, if not down even to the brigade level. Lee never does that. I mean, he talks to Jackson. Later on, he talks to Longstreet. He doesn't really bring uh, Yule or Hill into his confidence, uh, sometimes Stuart. He doesn't talk with his division commanders. I mean, if you read the memoirs of the brigadiers of the division commanders of the Army of Northern Virginia, it's very rare. I mean, there are a couple of instances where, where Lee sits down with them and tells them what he thinks or what he's doing, but that's, that, that's not the norm. So he's trying to run a, he runs a uh, decentralized system without empowering his subordinates. So when they ask themselves that, you know, the million-dollar question, if, if General Lee was next to me, what would he tell me to do? Then you make the decision and you do it. 
you have to know how generally he thinks to be able to do that. And if you don't know how he's thinking, if you don't know what he's thinking, I mean, for example, if you let's look through historians of the Gettysburg campaign, did Lee want to bring on a major battle or didn't he? I you know, you could, I could fill an office with books that says he didn't, and I could fill another office with books that said he did. We really don't know. Uh, he wrote two reports on Gettysburg, one closely after the battle, one the following January, and the one he never mentions battle, and the other one he does. So it depends which report you want to use. Uh, but so if, if we don't know it today, there's no way his people could no, have known then. No, I mean, Longstreet, you know, even in the movie Gettysburg, does he, did he really want to bring on a general engagement? Uh, you know, we really don't know. I think he did. But the problem is if you're a commander and you're not sure... How do you know what to do? Uh, and, and then you get into positions where not only people make the wrong decision, but you have somebody like Heath making a, an aggressive decision. Well, I think he does, so I'm going to go down, down the road and attack. But then you've got somebody else thinking that he doesn't, so maybe you know, like, like Yule, so he doesn't press hard enough or maybe as hard as he should have coming down from the north. Uh, well, you know, and, and it doesn't if, work if, if he doesn't want to bring on a major battle and he expects to be in Pennsylvania for a couple of months, which is what I think he wanted to do, uh, then if you're, if you're Jeb Stewart, the fact that you're a couple of days late is not going to make a difference. Uh, Mike, we're going to take a short break again sure. here. We'll come back in just a moment and figure out more of what went wrong with Lee's strategic offensives. We're talking with Mike Palmer, author of Lee Moves North. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 